0: Welcome to Crosstalk, the gospel for today and beyond. We are so glad you could join us today. The Crosstalk podcast is in pursuit of growing in our understanding of the gospel and discovering what it means to transfer to the next generation. And now, here are your hosts, Charles and Daniel. Welcome back to Crosstalk. We are
1: glad you could join us today. We continue our discussion on the men who made history as it pertains to church history? Uh, we're calling them the history makers because, quite frankly, that is what they did. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they by God's really race they did. Yeah, did form history and, in particular, church history uh, as we know it. Last time we talked about, I would say, positive history makers. We were pretty positive last week, but this time we're going to cover a little bit of the negative. Not completely. We're going to bring out some men who we feel, and you may disagree, so we're going to leave room for that that negatively um, impacted or reformed church history as we know it um, and had an influence that we don't think was a positive thing. So bear with us because I think it'll be informative and also something we can learn. and may be surprise. Yeah, absolutely. Um, first, we're just going to jump right in. And, and I will say this. Last week, I think I said two, and we have four. So I was off on my number. We're covering four today, not two, as I said last communication week. Communication so, breakdown. Yeah, I mean, that was my bad. But we have four. And the first one is Charles Spurgeon, which, quite frankly, no matter what theological stripe you are, I think just about everyone will quote Charles Spurgeon.
2: It's, it is funny because <laughs> uh, over the years I've read even
1: uh, good Arminians will quote. I'm telling Charles you, I've read Spurgeon. a smattering
2: of things from <laughs> fundamentalists to right. Presbyterians, and and uh, it's funny that. People who would not agree with his theology quote him like he's one of them, you know. Right. He,
1: well, and I think that's a testament to his influence.
2: It is, yeah. He and he was evangelistic. He was definitely a soul winner. And he he preached Christ. He preached the gospel. He was born the year after Wilbur Wilbur Wilber, Wil, William Wilberforce died. Nice try. It. Yeah, I say that ten times real fast. <laughs> and uh, he uh, he was raised in a home in which his mother. Strongly encouraged him to read Puritans, so mm. he had which we 've talked about a head full of Puritanism before he was converted, and a lot of people, maybe the people who are listening know his conversion story we won 't go into the whole thing except that he was almost converted by accident and if anybody knows With us quotations they know i don 't believe right, in right, accidents right. <laughs> but he he wound up in a Methodist meeting on a snowy morning because he couldn 't see to walk through the snowstorm and some layman who was not a preacher preached and really preached right at him, and mm. he was converted that morning. He was 19. I mean, he was no, – he was 16, I think. He um, he was gifted. He, it became evident real early right. that he was a gifted fellow. He preached some not too long after that, and, and it, he, uh, he became pastor of a, a small congregation, and then when he was 19, he was called to the pulpit of the New Park Street Church, and um, – he was. Uh, he began to preach, and people came to hear because he was just so good. He, I often tell preachers when I'm encouraging them, I don't think they should try to imitate his style of preaching because he wasn't an expositor as such as as I define exposition. Right. But he. He knew so much. He read so much. He had probably close to, if not a, a, photographic memory. He could spend all day Saturday preparing and be prepared. I don't encourage preachers to right. wait till Saturday for the sermons. But he, uh, um, he was. Uh, he just had incredible speaking skills. Had an incredible voice. And an incredible passion for the gospel and for the word. And just uh, so, even from a young age, it's a good thing because he wore out early and uh, mm. he he only lived to be in his 50s and he didn't quite make it to the 1900s. So, and he could have had he been a healthy man.
1: So, the question that comes to my mind is because he was so popular, so well known, and gifted, so that kind of helps with that. If I remember correctly, there wasn't there quite a few political leaders/influential slash influential people who would go to listen to him.
2: Yeah, he drew everybody. He drew the lord mayor and mm-hmm. yeah, he he was and when he died there were thousands, perhaps 100, 150,000 who came either to the funeral or to viewing and uh, a lot of those were political leaders. He he was he was kind of England's pastor. You know, sometimes we refer to Charles Stanley as America's pastor. That we used he used to be referred to like that.
1: Or Billy Graham who we're going to talk about here yeah, now.
2: Yeah, that's true. But uh, so yes, he had influence on upon political leaders. He uh, he he was so he did so much and made his church and leading his church. They they established an orphanage, almshouses. Uh, he started a pastor school. Spurgeon's College still exists today. Um, other ministries. I mean, just a plethora of ministries that he right. started. He he led. Two significant fights, theological battles. One was called a fight against the downgrade and the Baptist Union. The other was a fight against baptismal regeneration. And in the downgrade controversy, he he that became so heated, he was finally censured by the Baptist Union, which broke his heart. And some people believe it led to his early demise. He was already not well. He had struggled with gout from the age of about fifteen or sixteen, and. That can get you you know if you don't get it, and uh he often went to a little place in southern France to recuperate for sabbaticals to he wrote some there, but he also just recuperated, but he it just worn down yeah. uh. He, he is the most published preacher and maybe one of the most published people ever that it's interesting he would preach his messages and he would he would write out a manuscript but he wouldn't take it with him he would right. take in a, a card with just the outline and then a stenographer would take down the message and then the next day he would do some corrections, and it would be published, and sold. they were sold for a penny apiece. There were thousands of them. I mean, it was not anything like it since. I mean, just all sold like crazy.
1: Uh, we, well, we, I mean, his devotional is still very popular, and is a part of people's daily reading today. Yep, yep. And more
2: than one devotional. Morning
1: book. and evening. I mean, that's that's you the that, one that everybody knows about. His him.
2: devotional Bible. and Right checkbook of the bank of faith and, and so it's yeah it's, it's kind of it's a really amazing he um uh, uh he struggled throughout his life with depression there was an event that happened um, somebody screamed fire and he went to preach at this large building and there was a lot of people there and somebody screamed fire and it caused a stampede and i think a little child was killed if i remember mm. correctly he always kind of took that to heart he really had a hard time getting over that uh but Man, he, and it's tough and he struggled with uh, depression. So you read some of his devotional stuff. You say I can almost sense where yeah. that came from. No, absolutely. But he, um, uh, it got so many people were coming to hear him that they built a new building called the Metropolitan Tabernacle. It would seat five thousand. Another thousand could stand, and it was full all the time. So he was, uh, he was an incredible, and he's had an incredible influence on other preachers because preachers read him probably as much as anybody. I mean, if you have his Metropolitan. Metropolitan Tabernacle Pulpit, it's something like 60 volumes, I don't remember Mm -hmm. now, 62 volumes, of sermons, I mean, just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of sermons, and uh, men read those, men are influenced by those, He he was a walking theologian, his mind was so full, so sharp uh so he he affected uh the Calvinistic view of evangelism. Mm-hmm. he believed in offering the gospel freely to all to come to Christ. He did not offer an invitation, although he was available after services all of his messages were invitations to christ to the right. but he would but he would be available if there were people who wanted to talk or ask questions Well if
1: you read much of him, you get that invitation sense that he makes. The call to the gospel—you—you you get that very clearly—it uh, comes through his writings. So that—that uh, that does not surprise me at all when I hear you say you, that.
2: You know, we talked last time about Wilberforce and the line he drew when it came to slavery. What Charles Spurgeon stood against slavery, which made him not a friend of Southern Baptists at the time. Most Southern Baptists, because that was such a hot button button issue. It's is very uh, interesting, yeah. Yeah, but he, anyway, so you—you you get the idea there that here was a. Um, a man who's okay how long has it been i mean mid the mid 1800s we're now entering the mid 2000s we're not quite 200 years away from his peak of influence but maybe 150 years ago 165 years ago was his peak of influence and still i mean i i've never gotten his metropolitan tabernacle pulpit i've always wanted it right uh, you know, it's uh,
1: one of those list of things, right? Uh, it's just, its
2: almost like it's just a thing. If you right, can right, you know, <laughs> but,
1: absolutely, yeah. But anyway, okay. So Charles Spurgeon. Now we're going to move into a negative. Yeah, he was one a Baptist here. too. So. And was, okay, well, yeah. that's, that's good to know. That's important. Uh, you know, it's very important. I you being for, a Baptist, y'all. y'all don't yeah, forget that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, Charles Spurgeon. Now, more of a negative one would be Charles Finney. A different Charles. A very different Charles. We talked about a lot of Charles. Uh, both last week. I don't know if that's on purpose or. You well, know, your no, namesake, it just you know? kind of happened. We got Charles Wesley,
2: Charles Spurgeon, Charles Finney. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't uh, think about that.
1: Yeah. Anyway, Charles uh, Finney.
2: He was born right at the end of the 18th century, so he ca- he comes just after the Wesleys in Whitfield, and he's born after the Revolution, after the founding of the United States. But he but lives. he was a
1: revivalist.
2: He was a re- he was well. He was a first a lawyer. He was trained in law at least. He had a lawyer's mind. He was supposedly converted. Uh, I put conversion in quotes. I'm not saying he wasn't, but his view of the gospel leads me to believe, leads me to wonder. He was converted in 1821, so he would have been, what, 29, something like that. And then he was licensed shortly thereafter to preach the gospel, became a pastor.
1: He um, invented, can we say it that way? The altar call. So I was going to ask that question because I knew that was the case. But would you also take it a step further and say he is kind of the father of the even the modern emotional? And you don't see this a lot in churches as much, but the emotional altar call and to bring people right. down and yeah. to, to almost like coerce people into this confession of something, and then we got all these people saved. What would would he be considered the father of that? I think so. Yeah. I
2: think that's that's fair to say. If you think about here, – here's the thing about Finney that is so troubling, is that he reduced conversion to a decision, an intellectual and decision, an a mental decision. Up until this point, I'm not saying it didn't exist, but that was not a primary view of conversion. He um, introduced and popularized what – some of us of a more Reformed view now, would call decisionism, instead of conversion decisionism. Make a decision for Christ, that salvation comes when you decide to believe certain facts and to believe in Jesus mentally, and it became a mental transaction. Um, he, He developed certain rules of revival. And this is where we get into the difference between revivals, genuine revivals, and revivalism, and revivalist. Uh, That's why I made that
1: comment. He was a revivalist. So yeah, we're, we're, yeah.
2: I believe we'll talk about this some more next time or, or the time after that. But if you um, – th- the First Great Awakening was a manifestation of the work of God. And so certain things happened. Then, during the Second Great Awakening, what we saw was try to imitate – the things it's like, oh, it's that great. Happened. Let's well, do this they again. Then, yeah, they'll work now, and so that became I grew up. This is, um, it's not that long ago. I mean, I'm not too old yet, but <laughs> I grew up in situations where every spring and every fall we had quote unquote revivals, right? A revival was a time when we Tried to stir people. We brought in a special speaker. If you could afford it, a special song leader. He preached rousing messages and nothing wrong. A lot of with incredible st- things happened. Seeking to stir people by the word of God. But what sometimes we had and, and Finney started. I believe it was Finney who started what was called the cottage prayer meeting. And you meet in someone's home. You pray for people specifically. You pray for them a name. You, which you, is
1: not necessarily
2: wrong. Not a bad thing necessarily. But um, so Finney created the um um this revivalism and the altar he he created the mormon the morning bench where he would he would call people to come down to the bench and pray through and pray their way to God and uh, a lot of um it's almost Catholic hmm. in that if you do this. This is the result so you know, associated, associated with salvation with something
1: outward uh, a process a method, or you know it's interesting you bring this up because it's almost like we were more in love or he was more in love it appears with the means than the actual reason why they were doing it well, I believe he he's generally believed that
2: there were means that could be used that would. Dictate an outcome. Do
1: you believe it was truly a a heartfelt?
2: Yeah, that it will happen. You do this, this will happen. Uh, He he disagreed with more orthodox men uh, and preachers and pastors during the Second Great Awakening. He was a part of the Second Great Awakening, and we we see a lot more of revivalism in Second Great Awakening than we did in the first. Would you say it was less organic? Yeah, I think so. I'm not saying it wasn't organic. I think there was a move of God's spirit. I just think that there was a lot of contrived effort at producing certain results. Now, he went on to found Oberlin College. was taught there. was president there. That's a very liberal school now. not Not necessarily his fault, but maybe the foundation had something to do with that. He uh, he popularized a departure from the Reformed Protestant view of the gospel. Mm-hmm. The, the, the view of the gospel that came so popular in the United States especially and became a part of the evangelism of evangelical churches of what we would call um, warm evangelistic churches came from Finney. He he, he actually changed the face of evangelism, mm-hmm. and and I don't think for the good, but –
1: and I would say over the last hundred years you see the effect of that on the church. We
2: have seen that. I've yeah. grown up watching the effects of that in church. I that to leave a church easy, just is prayer, that. prayer, yeah.
1: Come to us out, join yeah. the church.
2: Yep. Come baptized, down to the aisle. Yeah. i Yeah. One of my favorite pastors, preachers. One of his favorite lines as he called people during the invitation <laughs> was Come to Jesus. Right. You equate coming to Christ with coming down an right. aisle. Come to Jesus. That that's Almost gives me shivers. Think about it, but well, um, and it,
1: we've been a part of churches for the last couple of decades that have moved away from that. Right. Well,
2: I moved away from it in my own. You notes, did, so, yeah.
1: and I remember that, and it was a huge pushback from that. Yeah. Um, but yeah. being a part of some churches where there's no altar call, but there's very much a openness of the elders and people who are prepared to talk with people afterwards. Right. And I, I think that's good because at that moment, if somebody's got questions, you want to engage with it. You want to, you know, work through it. Right. Um, I would say that the conversions and the thing and the baptisms I see from those conversions have been much more um real and genuine right. than the previous experience that I knew as a kid growing up with the altar call. Yeah. And the people over the years I've seen that are still following Christ, not that there wasn't anyone who didn't walk away, because that happens. Yeah. But the genuineness of that and the, the validity of it, the staying power of it, has been so much more.
2: I would challenge our listeners to consider the fact that the invitation is a relatively bre- recent development it in is. church history. It's certainly yeah. not a biblical development.
1: And having gone through church history – a very broad stroke, I think we can see that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, Charles Spurgeon, Charles Finney, more of a, a little bit of more of a, a not positive spin on church history. And Dwight Moody. He's, I mean, when you mentioned Dwight Moody, at least used to, most people think him as a father of modern Sunday school.
2: Yeah. Yeah. He did. And he, he was certainly, uh, fin, uh, Moody was a, um, he was a, a bit of a move back to. A more orthodox mm. approach. He was born. I don't
1: in, think I knew that. That's funny because i well, when I say that, he still
2: was very much. He used the altar call, right? That, and that now became sort of the, Status the thing quo. in crusades. Yeah. And uh, he, you know, he was born in 1837, so he came along during the same time. Finney. He uh, he um, had a fellow who traveled with him by the name of Ira Sankey, mm-hmm. and they did cru- crusades. Ira Sankey wrote a lot of. Gospel hymns. The gospel hymn replaced the uh, the older hymns. Oh, it's, it's ironic. It's, it's, it is. It is somewhat <laughs> ironic. The gospel hymns were like not quite as theologically yeah, yeah, yeah. strong. Um, a lot of what has been used in churches up to recently. Now we don't hear too many hymns anymore. But um, uh, he uh, he was he was a very successful shoe salesman when the Lord just got hold of him. I suppose and just he he became a preacher and a pastor he founded Moody Church in Chicago founded founded the Moody Bible, Moody Bible Institute all for the purpose he never saw himself as an intellectual and he certainly wasn't he was he was more of a, a good old boy country boy mm-hmm. you know he he wasn't schooled he wanted guys to be schooled, but he didn't want them to be intellectuals. He wanted them to be right. committed to the gospel and the preaching. And he, and so he founded Moody Bible Institute with that in mind. And uh, But he traveled across the United States, and he and I was thinking went to the British Isles and had some successful, um, successful crusades there. Um, and so um, he, Finney, then Moody – and then some others like Billy Sunday. We're not going to really go into Billy Sunday. Um, will influence our next subject a great deal. Another fellow by the name of of uh, Mordecai
1: Ham, who will come up when we talk about our next guy. So we've talked about all these, and now we're coming to the point, kind of making a leap actually, because yeah, we're we in the eighteen hundreds, moving over into the to the, you know, now the nineteen hundreds, moving into you know what we call modern America and modern day. Yeah, the 20th century. Yeah. yeah, the 20th century. And none other than the well-known, still well-known, even though he's dead, yeah. is Billy Graham. Yeah. Now, I do want to give our listeners a little bit of a pre-warning. We're going to have some negative thoughts and comments. Yeah. But we're also going to talk about the positive things that he accomplished. Yeah. And how he influenced culture in particular. Right. Uh, American culture, American politics. Yeah. Um, but anyway, Billy Graham... How does he fit into this idea of history makers? When, as it as it relates to the church history?
2: Well, he was certainly influenced by the revivalists before him,
1: and you cru- see that it's very evident.
2: The Crusaders. Yeah. He was converted. He was. He was raised in a sort of a rural country, North Carolina atmosphere. He went to a a meeting, and a fellow by the name of Mordecai Ham was preaching. Which and, we mentioned. Yeah. Um, He 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 had a conversion experience, and then uh, and he was young, and then he had a desire to preach. He had a voice, he had some ability, obvious ability. If you watch him preach and listen to him preach,
1: very charismatic, and I don't mean charismatic in the the sense sense, that he was attractive. uh, Yes, yeah, he he had an attractive uh, way about him. Manner, he did. He was a, Even the tone of his voice was winsome. Like, I mean, when you just listen to Billy Graham, it soothes yeah, you.
2: Yeah. I almost get to feeling Whitfield was somewhat like that. Mm. But I uh, don't know, since we didn't hear him, we don't have any recordings of him. Right. But yeah, I mean, when he said, the Bible says, it's just like, wow, yeah, mm. it does. And um, he uh, he was preaching, and he was preaching crusades, and he went to... California to Los Angeles in 1949 to preach Hmm. a two-week crusade, which uh, turned into eight weeks. It was just people came, and people came, and people came, people came down the aisle. He gave gave these invitations. They would uh, invite people to come down and counselors to talk to them and uh, invite them to receive Christ, and it just went on for eight weeks. He had another one similar to that in New York. Uh, but that one sort of catapulted him into the national limelight. He, now, now he's in Newsweek and Time magazines, which were a big deal then. You know, that was that'd be like your uh, what's it, your app on your phone that brought up the news. That's where it would have been on right that, you know? Yeah, and, absolutely. Yeah. Um, he uh, then he was just in great demand. Well, well I, I th- go ahead. I, well, I just think one of the things we could say about Billy Graham from the beginning was he established an association. And he was given a salary, and that's what he—that's what he received. Now I'm
1: sure it raised based upon inflation. And he was things a like textbook
2: that. example of integrity in ministry.
1: Well, and was, that was—that was going to lead me to. I was just reading an article about the Billy Graham Rule, and everybody always thinks the Billy Graham Rule in regards to you know you don't have dinner or a private meeting with women, but. There's actually four Billy Graham rules, and I would encourage you to go look those up. We won't talk about them today because we're trying to get through this, but he had four of them that him and some other guys that worked with him came up with because what they saw was in other evangelical ministries the pitfalls of both financial, sexual, uh, and prideful things that would happen, and so they developed these four rules to counter that. Yeah. So the Billy Graham rule, is not just one rule. It's actually four. So I would encourage you to go listen to that. But anyway, he, that he did that. He really coined that phrase that we now all use. Yeah. He uh, he was a model of integrity.
2: Mm. He well, is saying he received something. What, I don't
1: care who you are. That is saying something.
2: Yeah. He received a, a good salary, but by – uh, CEO standards, a modest salary. Right. Yeah, I, I mean, to the he,
1: breadth of his ministry. Yeah,
2: it was not right. what you would think. And of course, then he began to write. I mean, he wrote books and, and made money from books. He he uh, um, he he was the first evangelist to use the television and to uh, and other media. He started uh, um, a film company, mm. Worldwide Pictures. They, I think they did over 130 films. Well,
1: even his son, Franklin Graham, with Samaritan's Purse, is a direct product. Yeah, yeah. What we see and what he's doing is a direct product. Poly- it's yeah. still affecting America yep. today. Yeah,
2: it's and amazing. And the world. Really, and the Billy Graham Association still exists.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's just uh, incredible. Uh,
2: that's a, that's, uh, In that, some ways, it's almost mind-blowing. That and Samaritan's Purse are separate ministries. Yeah,
1: but I'm just saying the... That was an outflow of that. Yeah, it was. Yeah. It was.
2: I mean, he he was a friend of uh, I think six presidents. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was controversy over that. He he was a young brash evangelist in the early days, and he was asked, I think, by Eisenhower. Eisenhower was accused of being a um, a Jehovah's Witness. He, he wasn't. Some people in his family was, as uh, but but he was just. Stop and have a word of prayer, you know, just and just just take over the situation when he's in the presence of the president of the United States, or you know, those kinds of things. But he also founded he he founded Christianity Today, and uh, Carl F H. Henry was the founding editor of that. So I mean, he that's just really
1: yeah. Well, and I think what we have to say when we end is there was a weakness to his gospel invitation. Yes, it was we, typical. Going of back to the Finianism and and all of that, and and I think that's where the negative aspect that we don't like, and and I don't know any other words to use, but we would say that God used him, no doubt.
2: People were converted. I, Lies I were changed. I think there were a lot of people who misunderstood the gospel Good as a result. Happened. Yes. Yeah.
1: But what I'm saying is, is that negativism is important to bring out because. That's how people view Christianity, just make a decision, yeah. and then it really doesn't affect your life. Now, some people would count it and say, yeah, but he had follow-up and blah, 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 I'm tried to get people in church, and I agree with that. Yeah, But no matter how you slice it, weak evangelism will produce weak conversion. <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah, and and our view of the gospel has a lot to do with that. He he also cooperated with Roman Catholics.
1: Mm. So very and, ecumenical. And
2: he would funnel people into Roman Catholic churches. He Yeah. yeah he was very ecumenical. He... Um, Uh, His ecumenism probably was a great weakness. And um, uh, that turned him off from some people of a more fundamentalist stripe. Right. Now, that's probably not all that did, but certainly that did. And I understand because I. I couldn't funnel people into a Roman Catholic church, right. uh, and knowing what I know about Roman Catholicism, so, so anyway, I mean, he died in 2018. He was almost 100 years old, and his effect upon the 20th century, both the church and the culture, just—it's amazing, really, when you think about how one man had that much influence, and it, it and it wasn't bad influence, in, in yeah. the sense that he wasn't seeking for his own glory. Right. You, don't, you never ever get the impression this man. Willing to promote himself.
1: And even after his death, nothing ever came out.
2: Nope. Yeah. So
1: and there's something to be said for that.
2: And something of an enigma for for those of us who are a little more picayunish about our yeah. uh, theology. And, <laughs> yeah.
1: right. Well, all of this to say, as we look at these men and draw this to a close, we're gonna move into more of those movements that we've already talked about, but get into the depths of those. When we look at history makers, it's important to know and people wanna go, why is it important to know? Because we need to know upon whose shoulders we stand. Right. And the mistakes that they made are lessons, living lessons for us to learn from and the things yeah. that they did that affected it. We see incredible blessing from. We should praise God for. Yeah. And thank God that we come from such places and or I such men. His help and learning
2: from them. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Absolutely. Well, thanks for joining us and we'll see you next week.
0: Thanks everyone so much for joining us today. You can always visit us on the web at crosstalkpodcast.org. Crosstalk is produced by Vision for Living Ministries, a nonprofit organization. This podcast is a free resource, but you can support us financially through our website. For more information on Vision for Living Ministries, visit our website at visionforliving.org where you will find more great resources. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Just search for Vision for Living or on Twitter at V4L. We also love to hear from our listeners. You can email us anytime at info at Be sure to join us next week on Crosstalk, the gospel for today and beyond.